third session of the LSE Growth Commission. I'm Rachel Lomax, and for this particular session, I'm going to act as moderator. Um, it's our third session. We had a launch session here. We've had a session on skills, and we've got a load more uh, planned in the future. This session is going to be about statistics. We called it Beyond GDP, Other Measures of Growth. And we're very lucky that um, Tony Atkinson, Paul Schreyer, and Francesco Caselli, and indeed somebody in Rome, Paul Jean-Paul Fatusi, are, are, are here. Sorry, Francesco, you're a member of the commission. <laughs> this shows I'm useless at these things. Um, I ought to say that this session is being uh, recorded and it's going to be uploaded to our website, um, which um, you can find more information about this commission on our website, which is www.lse.ac.uk slash growth commission. Um, and I also ought to mention that the growth commission is apparently being sponsored by the Higher Education Innovation Fund and the SRC. With all that throat clearing, uh, um, uh, perhaps we could actually shut the door and get started. And what we're going to do is um, the three uh, presenters are going to take about 15 minutes each to set out their stall. Um, and then the commissioners are going to ask questions. And then I'm going to open it up to questions from people who've taken the trouble to come and uh, and be part of the audience today. I think the order which we might do the presentations is start with Tony Atkinson, um, we'll go to uh, Paul Schreyer, and then if we can... Yeah, John Paul Fatusi is in the John Paul Fatusi is behind the wall here, and we'll switch yeah. him on. Hmm. I think so he's we, in Rome we, we somewhere. Should, we should probably... There's a sort of bit of background noise coming from... Could you mute it? Is it possible to... John Paul, could you mute it? Or is it the central hmm. heater? I am listening. You're listening, it's very unnerving. <laughs> we could probably hear rather more of you than we need to. Can you mute it at your end? And then you can switch it on when you want to talk. Would it be better to start with John Paul, just in case? Just no, we're going to start with you. Okay. All right, well, it may be that my microphone's not close enough to my mouth, but there we are. Okay, well, let's start with Tony Atkinson, as I suggested. We'll come to you last, if that's all right. Okay. Okay, I, my presentation is somewhere here, so I hope it's from. Someone knows where it is, because I, I don't. Very good. Well, thank you for inviting me to take part. Uh, I think, in a way, uh, I suspect the three of us are going to say rather similar uh, things, and it might be more exciting to have a sort of clear uh, opponent of uh, the. <laughs> results of the commission which Joe Siglitz chaired and Jean-Paul was uh, running together with uh, Amartya Sen. Um, but I think what I'd like to do is move on from there in a way and ask you know, where we are now, uh, and in particular asking the question why in some sense we've made so little progress uh, in the years uh, since then in changing the way we think about judging our performance uh, with regard to economic growth. And I'm doing, I should say, on the basis partly of work I've been doing with my younger colleagues 
uh, in Oxford who are listed on, on this slide. The issues I want to discuss are sort of brought out by these two quotations from the, the recent press. In fact, the, the top one could be even more recent since I prepared these slides before last week when the more recent GDP figures came out. And uh, the British economy's performance is yet once again being assessed in terms of one single sole number. That's basically all that appeared in the headlines. Uh, it isn't uh, even GDP adjusted for the growth in population. It is simply GDP which appears in all of the, the headlines. Uh, if we took the trouble even to adjust as it were from population growth, we would have been flatlining earlier than now. Uh, Ed Balls could have had been doing his wonderful hand gestures uh, a couple of quarters ago because basically 0.7% isn't very slightly at all above population growth rate. And then the second quotation, um, I'll leave you perhaps to guess where, which country this relates to. It's clearly not United Kingdom since it refers to amazing growth. <laughs> but I'll leave you to guess which place this might relate to. Uh, I'll tell you at the end of the session. And you can see there it reflects the concerns, which I think are very widespread, including in countries with very high rates of growth, that the lament of ordinary people is not being, uh, that they're not being represented by these measures of performance. And this really brings me to the two points I want to make in the 10 plus minutes I have, which are, first of all, that the relationship between GDP and what it means for households is still rather opaque from our current system of national accounts. I should say, the stress, I do think national accounts are probably one of the top social science achievements of at least the last century. So I'm not in any way attacking national accounts. I think they've been an incredible value. But they do, I think, and have perhaps increasingly become rather remote uh, from the experience of individual households. And secondly, um, the fact that they clearly never set out to address what is always, I think, been an important issue, but has become even more so in the recent decades, uh, that about the distributional implications uh, of growth. So, so those are the two things uh, on which I'm going to focus. First of all, the human dimension, uh, a human face for the national accounts, uh, which I think the Stiglitz Commission correctly pointed to as one of the things that needs to be done. Uh, and in a sense, I think it's almost trying to return national accounts to where they started. I think we, in a way, began. If you look at the first national accounts, which actually, not many people know, the United Kingdom was the first country, I think, to produce official national accounts in the 1920s. And you may also not know that those accounts were not published until the 1970s. I don't know if the ONS is going to correct me, but I think that uh, it was only Dick Stone in the 1970s who published a document produced by the Treasury, which the Secretary of the Treasury at the time decided was too controversial to appear <laughs> in the public domain. But that was the national accounts, and those were national accounts drawn up largely on the basis of household income, because households were very much the beginning, as it were, to how you measured national income. And we've moved increasingly towards a sort of production-orientated version, and this is, took, I think it reached its limits uh, in the SNA 1993, when the production side really dominated, 
And if, if you look at the order in which things are discussed in the National Income Blue Book, it used to be that personal, the personal sector came first. When you, after you got to the aggregate figure, you then got tables for the personal sector. Now it appears next but last in the list after other sectors. So I think it's almost as well uh, a sign that the priorities have changed. And also, it is now very difficult to disentangle. The purpose of this diagram is not meant to stick you at the back of the room to allow you to see, although I will be spelling out a few of these points in a moment, if it conveys an impression of something which is very hard, hard to read, that's exactly the impression it's meant to convey, because this is, it is very hard to read the current national accounts if you ask the question, uh, what exactly is the implication at, for the level of individual household resources? And, of course, I'm focusing here, and this is what we were asked to do in the session, on material well-being. I'm not discussing wider issues about what, how we should measure well-being beyond uh, economic resources. And that's a shame, because there's an interesting story to tell. Um, and this is a story which I hope will get more attention very soon when the report that Stephen Jenkins is in the audience is about to produce on the distributional effects of the recession. But I think there's a, an interesting story before one looks at the distributional effects, this shows the Eurozone, and it shows the GDP figures, which are all indexed from 1999, and these are all volume figures. Uh, it shows that uh, GDP grew in the Eurozone over the course of the last decade, up to 2007, by something on the order of 20%, and then fell precipitously uh, after that. So those are the squares on the diagram, and then the line which is joining it is the what happened to the real household gross disposable income, which is not so easy to discern from the Eurostat. You have to look for it if you can find it, but it's not the headline figure. And that's what I, what I think we ought to be, be looking at, because it, in a sense it's closer, but not quite as close as I'd like to be, as I'll explain in just a moment to what we actually want to look at. And it tells a story which I think is an interesting story, and it's really not a story which has had much publicity. It's a story which shows that from about 2004, say, the, the, the line, rather than the squares, grew rather more slowly over this period. So there was a, a period of four or five years when household incomes were not rising at the same rate as GDP. And I think it's worth stressing this, because it's also a period when, essentially, people were asking where was the growth going. It was also a period which clearly meant where we were not sort of living beyond our means, at least in the Eurozone, not us in that case. And then you can see that after that, you then see, and I haven't brought the figures right up to date, I'm afraid, this, but you can see that for much of the period up to 2010, there was more or less a flatlining of household disposable income, not a precipitate decline. And that does show that the measures taken, the... Uh, policy changes were made, but also the automatic stabilizers, the much denigrated European welfare state, was actually doing what it was supposed to be doing over this period. And that's uh, uh, something which we have lost sight of, I think, that these programs were actually intended to pr protect people to some extent against falls in income, and they did do that. Not fully, but you can see it sort of tails off a bit, but it's nothing like as bad. And if that story had been told, then we might, I think, have a different view of quite what going on in this period. And it's a story which is in the figures, but it's rather hard to get out. And this is a diagram I would like to see as it were coming out on the front pages of the newspaper, rather than just the squares, which is all you get in the headlines. Now, it is, of course, 
as a particular measure, and one I'm not totally happy with, because if someone stops you in the street and says, well, actually, that doesn't correspond to what I've experienced in the last few years, then I have to say that they're probably right, because we have then to look a bit behind this, to look into the entrails. And I've done it here for the UK. This is rather than the Eurozone. This is uh, just taking one country. It's doing it, again, in volume terms, in this case, based on 2001. And it's, based, it's doing it per capita. And you can see there the hollow squares are the GDP rise to by nearly 15% over this time, and then the drop. Uh, following 2007, and that's I've taken only up to 2010, but you, can, you know the story since then. And then you've got the uh, diamond shapes at the top, uh, the sort of blue diamonds, which suggests that the UK didn't lag behind very much in terms of the gross household disposable income behind GDP in the early period. So it appears that what I showed you before was more a Eurozone phenomenon rather than a G UK phenomenon. We didn't sort of save up a bit of, over that period. Uh, and you can then see what happened since then is that household disposable incomes, again, uh, as measured by national accounts, uh, are more or less stable after 2007. So that, in that sense, the UK was having the same experience uh, as the Eurozone. But of course, it doesn't necessarily match up to what people say when you leave, talk to them on the bus or whatever, because they say, well, hang on, it isn't quite what's happened to me. And it isn't quite what's happened to me because they actually have in mind probably something else than what's measured in this household disposable income figure. And that's the purpose of this graph, which is just to step back and say, what if you think about what you mean, the man in the street, person in the street, in terms of spendable income, to get to that, you have to <coughs> disentangle, and you have to disentangle particularly a number of important imputations. And again, this is part of the story of national accounts. They're increasingly, because they want to improve, have moved to having much more in the way of imputations. And so you have, for example, to take off the imputation of the net equity of pension funds, that is the addition essentially, to, which is making households better off in a sense, but they certainly don't usually typically say, oh yes, thanks for that. <laughs> Good of you to put it in my, into my pension fund. They probably are aware of, but didn't think of as income, the imputed value of government services, which of course has been a major part of the story over this period. We've, quite a lot of the GDP has gone into improving the health service and education and other things. And that's what's measured in the individual consumption of public services, which is the biggest adjustment effectively here, which takes you down to the line whose color I'm not sure is also sort of yellowish kind of color uh, with triangles. And then finally, there's imputed rent and owner occupation, which of course is in there for understandable reasons, but understandable to national accountants and economists, but less so to the person in the street who may not quite see that the, you can see increased contribution in the recent years of imputed rent may not correspond to what they think they've been getting. And that's why the spendable income series that I end up with, the one at the bottom, the squares, shows a much smaller growth over the decade as a whole. Uh, around about 6-7% rather than 14-15%. And that's one of the gaps which I think creates some of this misunderstanding about the relationship between growth and how people benefit. The other source of misunderstanding, and this I'll deal with much more briefly since I think the points are fairly very well understood, is who gets this? As my teacher in Cambridge used to say, qui bono, is, uh, <laughs> Joan Robinson used to say, that's the, that's the question. <laughs> who gains from all this, and that's not just about the UK, it's about individual citizens. 
So the second question is the Stiglitz recommendation about bringing distribution in. And the only really major point I want to make here is a very simple one, but I think it's very important, is that distribution, if you're assessing the performance of an economy, not just doing accounting, which is a very perfectly reasonable exercise to do, but if you're trying to use this as an evaluative instrument, then the distribution has to be an integral part of it. It's not a sort of add-on. It isn't an optional part. It's not like you can say, here's GDP or national income or household income, and over there, by the way, down there somewhere is the Gini coefficient that tells you what's happened to distribution. These things have to be looked at together if you're evaluating, not if you're simply looking at the flows and resources, but if you're thinking about evaluation, it isn't a thing to do, here's a separate branch which does it. This has to be something which is integral. And that's why I've uh, certainly urged on the Siglitz Commission, and they've certainly put it in, that we should look at measures which integrate them, such as the three I've listed here. One is simply using the median rather than the mean, which is another central measure of central tendency, but one which is much more meaningful and easily interpreted by politicians who understand, people in the middle, uh, and so on. It would probably appease Ed Miliband to some degree if we looked at median incomes rather than mean incomes. Or, as one of the co-organizers of the commission proposed many, many years ago, um, to measure sin real national income, that is simply apply distributional weights, and the reason, way of doing that is simply to essentially, if you follow what he suggested, is adjust the mean by one minus the Gini coefficient as a measure of the inequality. And I should just point out, this is a measure which is... is fully uh, consistent with responding positively to everyone's income, anyone's income going up. Sometimes it's asserted that if you bring in things like this, you're saying touching a negative weight to an increase in the income of rich people at the top. This doesn't, it may give very little weight, uh, but it nonetheless uh, it gives some weight to everyone. Everyone gets a positive weight in that. Or following recent events, we could look at the bottom 99% and forget about the top 1% altogether. And this is straightforward to do. I mean, it's a matter of getting out your calculator and doing it. So it doesn't, isn't so easy to do up to date because you need distributional information which comes with a longer lag, so you can't be looking at the last quarters or something, but you could do much better than we do now in terms of being up to date. But it's very straightforward to do, and it does change the picture. And the last slide, effectively after one slide, shows what would happen in the UK if over the last 50 years we had used these distributional measures, and rather than growing household income at 1.94% on the, the SEN adjusted measure, it would be something like 1.55. So it would be, we'd have lost something like 0.4% per annum in growth because of the changes, adverse changes in the distribution of income. And I assume 0.4%, if, you can, if your commission can produce an extra 0.4% on the growth rate, you'd be rather pleased. So, I mean, that's, this is 0.4 is serious. It's a serious adjustment. But as I said, it's straightforward to do, and it would be very easy you know, for next week someone to simply start producing distributionally adjusted GDP figures and discussing those. Uh, in, with the same intensity we discuss uh, the GDP figures. And so I'll leave out the top, uh, the, the bottom 99. We can come back to that in the discussion. 
But just to summarize what I've been saying, there's clearly a lot in was contained in the Stiglitz Commission, which suggested very wide-ranging changes. There's also a lot which suggested which could be done very easily. And I think we shouldn't forget about the things that could be done rather easily, just to change the way we think about things immediately, as well as thinking about the other much more ambitious ideas about measuring well-being in more general ways and so on. We can immediately, for example, look at household income in a more meaningful way, get that quarter by quarter, and we can immediately make inequality adjustments if we chose to do so. And I hope that's something your commission might encourage people to do. Okay, thanks very much. Um, here to Paul next. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, I will do two things. I will give you a very, very brief uh, background on what the OECD does in the area of measuring well-being, and then more specifically focus on uh, two measures that uh, we are proposing by way of measuring material well-being. And you will very quickly notice that they are pretty much on the same page as uh, the measures that uh, Tony has put forward. So just by way of a background, the OECD in its work on measuring well-being uh, follows very much uh, the basic structure that came out of the Stiglitz and Fitusi report. Basically, we're looking at measures of material well-being, which are very much centered around national accounts type measures. We are then looking at measures that describe the quality of life in the form of a number of dimensions. They are listed here. I won't be going uh, in those. Uh, uh, there's a, one of these dimensions is subjective well-being, but that's only one of them. All the others are uh, what you would call objective measures. And finally, there's a, uh, an item on sustainability where uh, we're trying to look at uh, well-being uh, over time. <coughs> the basic approach that we have is uh, characterized by four uh, items. It is multidimensional, so we do not believe in a single indicator of uh, uh, well-being. We try and focus on households and individuals in our measures. We try to focus on outcomes rather than outputs or inputs, for example, Health would be described by the status of health of the population rather than by the expenditure on health services. And uh, the distribution of these characteristics across households or individuals for all dimensions is something that we try to uh, pursue in our work. <clears throat> if you want to know more about our general work on well-being, I refer to you to a recent uh, publication that uh, we came uh, that we brought up. It's called How's Life, and it covers uh, those dimensions and the data we have for the uh, OECD countries. <coughs> now, let me talk more specifically about the first group of indicators, that is measures of material well-being. <coughs> Before doing this, I would like to make a statement about GDP, because uh, sometimes I think there's a bit, of a bit of a confusion or a danger of throwing out the baby with the bath water, so to say. Uh, we do think that uh, GDP is, is and has been and remains a useful figure for a certain number of purposes. 
namely for the purposes that it was conceived, is a measure of output production for monitoring macroeconomic uh, policies. It is important if you want to measure productivity. In short, if you want to have information basically on economic activity on the supply side of the economy, you still need GDP. So it's not an issue of doing away with GDP. It is an issue of using it for the purposes for which it has been conceived. One purpose for which GDP has not been conceived is measuring well-being. And this is where you need additional measures. <coughs> but uh, the implication is not that GDP needs to be supplanted. Uh, the implication is that GDP needs to be supplemented by uh, a small number of meaningful additional indicators. At the European level, there has been a discussion on this, actually, uh, which started out with the title uh, GDP and Beyond. And uh, uh, it started out with the title Beyond GDP and became GDP and Beyond. So you, you notice the small but important uh, difference. Uh, and I think uh, we, we would very much uh, sign up to this. Um, so what are the measures that we would envision to supplement uh, a GDP so as to get a better grip on material well-being? Uh, I think there are two levels at which it is interesting to look at this. The level of the total economy, so if we want to make statements of the average well-being of a country as a whole. And uh, secondly, the level of households, which is very much uh, in line with what uh, uh, Tony just uh, presented. Let's have a look at uh, conceivable measures of uh, uh, well-being, uh, material well-being at the total economy. And I will take you a little bit into the national accounts terminology, so please bear with me. Uh, it's actually not that, <coughs> not that uh, complicated. <clears throat> the first uh, and general issue is that if we want to measure material well-being, we are well advi advised to look at measures of income rather than at measures of production. And now, at a very simple, in a very simple sense, these two are, are equal. But as soon as you add or take off certain elements, they become can become quite different. The first uh, additional subtraction that uh, we would carry out is to move from a principle of uh, domestic income to a principle of national income. What does that mean? It means you take account of income flows in and out of the country. Uh, this may not be all that important for some OECD countries. It is important for certainly for countries uh, outside uh, the OECD area, when you think of remittances, for example, that are being paid or received by developing countries into developing countries. Uh, but it is even there are some OECD countries where you get quite a lot of, uh, quite a stark difference, whether you look at a national or domestic income, Ireland being a, a, a case in point. Uh, you have a lot of foreign investment uh, uh, income leaves the country. Uh, afterwards, so there's a difference in the evolution of national and domestic income. Uh, Switzerland would be the other way around. There's a lot of uh, Swiss investment abroad, so there, there is income repatriated, which raises uh, uh, Swiss national income as opposed to its domestic income. Second adjustment in terms of income is to look at a net rather than a gross measure. Essentially, that means accounting for the fact that uh, our assets depreciate or are depleted as we 
uh, as we undergo economic activity and that any gross measure does not account for this. There's, of course, the depreciation of fixed assets. This is what we normally find when we look into our uh, national accounts. So this would be the depreciation of machinery, equipment, structures, and so on. Uh, but uh, I think we should also look at the depreci uh, depletion of uh, natural assets, uh, in such as mineral and energy resources, soil, timber, water, <coughs> aquatic resources. These are all economic assets. I'm not talking about ecosystem services, which would be even a step beyond this. But there are a number of resource-rich countries. Think of Australia, Canada, UK, uh, Netherlands, uh, where uh, neglecting the uh, depletion of the natural asset gives you a kind of a biased picture of the actual income, uh, the net income that is available to the country at the end of the day. All these adjustments uh, can be done or would be done in a first instance basically at current prices. But then uh, uh, there's a question of how do you move from a current price measure to a real measure and the different options to do so. Now, theory would actually tell us that we should deflate these uh, income measures with some kind of price index that uh, reflects uh, uh, consumer prices. So as to express our income measures in equivalence of uh, uh, consumer uh, goods and uh, services. Um, in one word, uh, at the national level, the target measure to be put forward would be something uh, like, uh, uh, could be called real net national income uh, adjusted for the depletion of natural resources. I should add that in principle, all these figures exist in the current national accounts. They're not well developed. Not all countries uh, have full balance sheets where they would recognize, say, the natural assets, where they would be able to measure the depletion. But we don't have to make any conceptual leaps here to get these uh, measures in place. We only have to get the data uh, in. There's some work ongoing at the OECD in the context of green growth that targets precisely uh, the uh, development of better measures of the depletion of natural resources. I don't have to go into this here. Uh, the second measure that I'd like to mention is households, and we've already heard about this. Here, uh, just to kind of set the, the picture, it is a non-trivial matter looking at when you compare uh, real household incomes and volume GDP, and just as Tony showed the uh, slide with the uh, evolution of the EU household income and GDP over time, here's a cross-country comparison. It stops before the crisis, but the message is still uh, the same. You can have very different evolutions, even over longer periods, of uh, real household income and volume GDP. Uh, that's a different way of saying that volume GDP growth is not a good proxy for measuring household uh, income uh, changes. So what would be the measure for household income to be put forward? Well, first, we uh, would say that it should be a measure of disposable income, which means uh, it should capture the various uh, transfers that household uh, that undergo between uh, that households undergo between the household sector and other sectors. So, for example, you'd like to take account, of course, of taxes that are being paid by the households, 
of uh, monetary transfers that the households uh, receive, of the income that households pay or receive from, from abroad. Uh, uh, so we should be looking at the end of the income accounts, so to say, not at the beginning of the income accounts. Uh, a second uh, uh, adjustment is moving from what is called the disposable income to adjusted disposable income. That just means that we would like to capture the money equivalent of the services that government provides at low cost or for free. In particular, these are health, education, and housing. Uh, because uh, both over time and, of course, between countries, one can uh, get quite a biased picture by ignoring the fact that uh, different <coughs> countries uh, would provide different levels of government services over time. And again, we would like uh, real measures rather than volume measures that is deflating uh, this whole uh, income by some kind of consumption price index, uh, probably uh, a price index that reflects this actual final consumption that uh, captures also the uh, government uh, services. And last but not least, uh, uh, add in some information about how this disposable income is distributed about, uh, between households. This brings us back to uh, Tony's uh, uh, presentation. I put median income here, but of course there are other options that are they uh, all uh, equally uh, meaningful. So in one word, uh, the target measure here would be real median adjusted disposable household income if you want to have the national accounts uh, uh, denomination. Uh, we do have a project actually ongoing that tries to address this issue of uh, bringing distributional information to the national accounts. Uh, it would seem uh, straightforward to uh, say that, oh, we have all this information on household income distribution out there from surveys of households anyway, so why don't we just plug it into the national accounts? That is a little less uh, easy than it sounds because the definition of what constitutes income is actually different in the national accounts from uh, these household surveys, so one has to reconciliate uh, the definitions and the measurements to make these uh, distributional elements precisely the integral part of the accounts that uh, were mentioned before. We're doing this with a number of countries and hopefully we'll have a set of results later uh, this year. This is just a little example from a case uh, study that was done in France uh, uh, two years ago, so where you see a household account broken down by income quintiles. So, I mean, moving from primary income, this would be wages, uh, adding or taking off uh, taxes, adding in uh, uh, benefits to uh, disposable income, adding in the government, uh, uh, government transfers in kind. But all this is done for each of the income quintiles, and uh, it gives you a very interesting picture of how redistribution works in an economy. It also gives you interesting information about saving rates, which are vastly different, of course, between the various uh, quintiles of uh, income. All right, to uh, sum up uh, my messages, uh, I think this is uh, about uh, GDP and beyond, not necessarily about beyond the GDP. Uh, 
well-being, at least as we understand it, is multidimensional and uh, requires measures of material well-being and quality of life. For material well-being, there are two types of information that we think are central and should be coming up more to the headline of uh, statistical communication. That is, at the national level, <coughs> measure of real net national income, depletion adjusted, and at the household level, a measure of real adjusted disposable household income uh, uh, distribution adjusted. I end with kind of a remark that uh, relates to something that was also put forward in the report by the Stiglitz Commission. Uh, it is worth uh, periodically uh, to assess the value of uh, household services that are produced at home. This is not part of the national accounts, and I don't think it should be part of the national accounts, but it is useful to recognize that a lot of uh, household services are produced without any monetary transactions. And these are probably becoming increasingly important. Think of the care of the elderly, childcare, washing. There's a big gender component, of course, in here. And uh, uh, it is a useful addition to the information that the national accounts uh, provide to uh, value these, uh, uh, these services at least uh, every three, four, five years to get a sense of how they evolve and where they're going. And on this, I'd like to conclude my uh, presentation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, now we have to make a technical leap uh, to Jean-Paul. Can you hear us? Okay. We can hear you. Far away. Thank you very much for inviting me to this hearing. I'm very happy to, to be here in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Virtually. <laughs> to, to, to find myself as a patient to a very important member of the Commission on Economic Performance and Social Programs. I will uh, speak uh, taking uh, paper that the close English and myself have uh, written. It is a rather general paper, so there will be no slide, but some uh, points which uh, we think are important. First, we consider that there is not a single year since uh, 2008, where our measurement system has not been called into question. The financial crisis revealed that we were not doing as well as we could when we were looking at other measures. But this is to realize that the economic growth was not sustainable, and the output measure has been interpreted by bubble prices in the United States and by the fiction of profit in the financial sector. The fact that in some countries, say the US, GDP has returned to pre-crisis level does not capture in any way the diminution of the sense of well-being. For example, in the US, we almost one out of six Americans who would like a good job, uh, an everyday one, 
and Omar are facing the risk of losing their home. The loss in well-being is enormous. The situation in Spain is even worse with an unemployment rate higher than 34%, and more than one out of two young Spanish unemployed. I'm trying to make four points. The first is that uh, the event in Japan last year can be seen as a metaphor of our measurement problem. Some uh, suggest well, that while in the short run GDP may increase, in the long run it will rise as a result of a reconstruction efforts. The nuclear disaster has increased anxiety and may well have a significant health effect on large number of population again. The expenditure required to respond may raise GDP perhaps enough to get the Japan out of its long-standing malaise. But no one would claim that Japan is better off as a result. Would require a huge increase in GDP to compensate for the destruction of capital or kind of assets that the infant has proved and to offset the increased anxiety that so many in the country face today. And uh, our metric are not good at measuring the value of a lost asset. Even if it were, the arithmetic of compensation will not tell us much about the way the well-being of Japanese people has evolved. Uh, in the aftermath of the crisis, we now realize that our measures before the crisis were also not accurate. GDP may have been higher because of a greater efficiency in cost saving as a result of a lot of reliance on the nuclear, as opposed to, say, renewable energy. The placement of a spark of nuclear material in the way that it's pulled, the entire country risk that are not so evident, may also have contributed to the seemingly higher GDP value. But just as accounting framework before the financial crisis, Mispriced risk, so too in Japan. The Japanese case is thus a metaphor because it underlines the free shortcoming of our methods. The measurement of income and product, the measurement of well being, and the measurement of sustainability. And so, another universal fact, well documented is the intra-country increase in inequality, which has characterized at least the past quarter of century. But the slide shown by Tony and Paul are interesting in this subject. The problem is the following. If, uh, as it is, it has been documented by a study of OECD, but 80% of the population has had a, 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 
that he be the maker, Lord, than the average rate of the group, than the and that the distribution of this increase has been lower, the lower is the desired procedure. We think that we have a problem because what we want to know is what is happening to most citizens. And the GDP tells us little thing about that. Uh, and the, uh, the slide is shown by Tony are very striking about this fact. Another example is provided by uh, by the, the use of GDP. I believe, like Paul uh, Schreier told, uh, that uh, we don't have to problem out GDP of our statistical data. We have to look at GDP and beyond. But when we look at GDP, and I am referring to what did happen in the Arabic world, when we look at GDP, we could be led to conclude in the way uh, Robert Barrow did when he tried to uh, <coughs> make a relationship between the degree of political freedom and the increase and the growth of GDP. And this conclusion was that uh, the uh, increase in uh, the growth of GDP is uh, higher for a political regime which has a, a, a kind of a 0.5 on the scale of political freedom. The scale going from 0 to 1. But uh, even if the result of, uh, what, uh, of a study by Robert Barrow is uh, Exact and, and it is not, so it is now. The conclusion of the country would be most advised to postpone democratization until we can afford the luxury good but uh, positive uh, freedom <laughs> is not the same. It may well be, but will be increased more from an increase in political freedom than from an increase in GDP, especially the way it is measured. Third example is the sustainability. We know that it is important for any society to form an assessment, no matter how imperfect, about whether its current consumption of well-being or well-being is sustainable and whether first is coming at the expense of future generation. We cannot settle whether society will be increasing or decreasing per <coughs> capita if appropriately measured it is increasing, then presumably society can do in the future whatever it is today. It can that is it can sustain its per capita. But we need a comprehensive measure of wealth 
and we need to be sure that the variations are correct. One of the problems encountered with the aftermath of financial crisis is the misuse of the concept of sustainability. The lack of an indicator of sustainability may lead us to an unsustainable path, but the partial measure may lead us to wrong policy. The case in point is Europe. Sharing a common currency in the global crisis, Eurozone countries are currently looking for sustainable indicators in order to assess the financial sustainability, by which they essentially mean the sustainability of the public debt of each member of the country. They are trying to define sustainability objective to implement the economic policy that they are sustainability friendly and spread information to financial market in order to reduce pressure on public and private sector borrowing. The problem is that European countries are focusing on the very popular view of sustainability daily, the sustainability of public debt, which leads them to impose on territorial countries a certain problem that is political policy, which would like to result in a much lower rate of growth and may eventually lead to financial sustainability and sustainability. <laughs> One of the problems is that if policy aimed at reducing public debt leads to the destruction of social and human capital, that uh, this uh, destruction are not taken uh, into account because we have no metric to measure that. We will we'll be there to, to enforce policy which will reduce sustainability because of a loss of human and social capital and having just uh, gained one point of GDP of uh, public capital by the mean of retention of the public debt. Now, uh, the fourth point I want to do is about the well-being and the business side. Uh, in uh, his uh, report, the Commission emphasized the importance of employment cases. One point where various subjective measures of people will be agreed is that unemployment has a very unjust effect on people's quality of life. People who become unemployed recall lower life evaluation even after controlling for their lower income. The adverse effect persists in the The unemployed also report higher prevalence of various negative behaviors such as stress and pain, and lower level of positive ones. One may also suspect that the adverse effects of unemployment are felt even by those who are not themselves unemployed, especially in society where there is high unemployment, if not mass unemployment. And uh, uh, 
all of these suggest that uh, economic fluctuation may have strong, asymmetric effects on well-being. Something we should already immediately know. Moreover, some of the consequences of health and education may be irreversible. So, that is the reason why we should develop uh, other methods to complement what uh, the GDP figure is uh, telling us. As uh, I have tried to show, to show uh, what we, we measure as best, what we do. And uh, if we are not measuring the destruction of human capital, uh, we would not have the complete picture of the consequence of the policy we are undertaking. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much for that contribution. Um, now, we've got about an hour before we have to break because there's a sort of hard deadline of noon. Um, and I think um, we need to uh, provide some time for people from the audience to put their questions because there are two people here who come with questions. Um, so, I'm going to suggest that um, the commissioners definitely don't take more than half an hour in uh, grilling our... Um, our guests, um, and ideally less than that. Um, but I think the thing to do is to sort of pass the questioning round. Fortunately, there aren't very many of us here, so we can be reasonably uh, um, <coughs> economical. And we can have subsequent, we need to have a broader discussion later with everybody on the Commission on the big question that this all raises, which is, you know, what does this, uh, what's the bearing of all this on <coughs> our, our work for the, uh, for the Commission about growth? And I mean, how far you know, is any of this really relevant to the way you design policies as opposed to evaluate um, uh, economic performance and assemble statistics in a way which tells you something about outcomes? Um, but that's a bigger conversation that we'll have later, though, if anybody wants to add something on that, that would be helpful. I'm going to start off by suggesting, Tim, you lead off the question. Yeah, well, actually, I was going to come in on precisely that point and <laughs> get each of our presenters to perhaps give us their preferred example of a policy implication that they think comes out of a richer view of material well-being um, rather than a, a traditional focus on GDP. So where do you think, if, if at the end of the day, this commission is about mm -hmm. trying to produce some policies, um, and, and I wonder whether each of them had or could offer as an example of where they think the, the way they're encouraging us to think would lead to a, to, a, to a different policy implications of the kind we might reach if we were too focused on GDP. Okay. Um, <laughs> not to give an answer in terms of specific policies for growth, but rather um, one of the things I think came out of thinking about this is the need perhaps to reposition expectations with regard to growth, which I think is in fact part of policy. And I think that the, what I was, the kind of decomposition I was looking at of where the difference in GDP growth and household incomes was drawing attention to the fact that the uses we make of increased resources uh, is going to be one of the big 
issues the decision and is going to be highly contested. And over the recent years, we've, certainly in the United Kingdom, allocated quite a lot of this uh, to the expansion of uh, individually consumed public services. And I suspect that's going to be continuing, um, partly because uh, of the role probably played by education in terms of growth for other reasons we've probably discussed in other sessions. We're not going to reduce our investments in education, uh, but certainly also in terms of the aging of the population and the health care needs and personal care needs. And so I think that the, it's rather important that somehow there should be a lowering of expectations without necessarily saying we're going to grow more slowly, although we may well think that may also be true, uh, that nonetheless one can't expect that household, household cash spendable incomes are going to rise at the same rate uh, as GDP. And I think making, bringing out that, that gap between the two will perhaps personally, first of all, have a effect of correctly lowering expectations, which will reduce pressures on uh, governments and others in terms of their performance, and also... Um, I think allow a much more sort of sensible debate about what we should do uh, with, after all, as the figures show, we've had a big increase in uh, the resources measured in this way in the last decade. I mean, everyone talks to the last decade that was sort of lost or something. We had probably somewhere between 15 and 20% increase over that decade in resources. And we have very little discussion about exactly where that was going to go. And I think that discussion is an important one to have ex ante rather than necessarily ex post. Um, I'll, well, I'll give you two, two examples where I think uh, a different uh, presentation of the indicators could, uh, could play a role. Uh, I mentioned the depletion-adjusted... Uh, yes, can you hear me now, Jean-Paul? Uh, the, uh, the first example is the uh, depletion-adjusted income. This may be, well, it may be uh, an issue for the UK, but uh, there are certainly other countries... Uh, where uh, the economies are thriving on resource booms. I mentioned mm -hmm. Australia now, uh, where it is uh, not clear what uh, the uh, accounting looks like uh, if we don't take uh, into account the fact that uh, the Australian economy, GDP, uh, runs on the fact that uh, natural resources are being depleted. That may be, uh, I mean, may be going on for a long time or not, depends on the, on the resource. But it is a fact that the GDP itself does not give us the right story there about what is the sustainable income for the Australian economy. And indeed, in Australia, a lot of people uh, uh, ask themselves, I mean, how will the economy uh, uh, continue? What happens if the growth in China uh, uh, slows down? Uh, uh, so there are lots of questions, and I think it would make sense to bring this to the forefront uh, with uh, uh, depletion-adjusted uh, income. The, the other example is uh, the household income uh, uh, this, uh, ventilated by uh, uh, distribution or quintiles. Uh, as you could see from the little table that I showed for France, this tells you actually a lot about social policies and whether they work or not. I mean, you want to know, you want to make sure that the 
uh, redistribution, if it's envisioned, envisioned by the government, actually gets to the right people. And just looking at the wage rate of the economy, basically where the incomes get into the, into the, uh, uh, into the economy is not enough because you want to make sure that the distribution uh, process actually works and that you can only do by uh, disaggregating your household accounts uh, by uh, uh, income uh, uh, group. Okay. Jean-Paul, do you want to come in on this question of policy design? We can't hear you. Switch. You're mute. You're mute. Please switch your machine on. <laughs> yeah. <Sorry>. Yes, okay. <laughs> so, uh, what they just been saying up there. the government production and that would be of uh, a great added because uh, for the moment we are measurement I think uh, the production of added, the production of education because we are just creating uh, this uh, through uh, the uh, expansion and uh, if we uh, why would you love some metric or memory that God We uh, would have a better vision of what is happening to GDP, even uh, without changing uh, our indicator. Okay, you happy with those questions? I'll hand over to my colleagues, I'm sure. <clears throat> okay, shall I go next? Pick up. Um, so thank you for very interesting presentations. Um, I, I think the, the thing to me, uh, it's like, I was like, it's like confusion, I think, over some of the presentations, at least in my mind. So it seems to be at one level, people were saying, you know, what's the measure mm-hmm. that we want everybody to focus on? We want the financial times to focus on this, this particular measure. And, you know, there isn't, <laughs> A magic number for the, you know, the average well-being or the median well-being or whatever, however you want to think of the well-being, I think, of, of the nation. And it, it's a, more of a kind of, there may be a kind of political or media strategy in terms of producing a better figure that people latch onto rather than GDP. I, I would be, and I'd be very interested in, you know, whether you think we, sh- I mean, we could certainly think about developing a, you know, a better number, maybe the same number or some inequality adjusted number which would stick in people's minds better. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's some purpose to that. But it seems to me all the, a lot of the things that we were discussing here were things that could already be done. I mean, I was very struck by what Paul said, that, in fact, most of the adjustments that we need to be done to the numbers are already effectively there. And it's actually the analysis and presentation of those numbers. I mean, I'm not under, undermining the OECD's important work to do that. And maybe we need to get more resources to, you know, to, to do that. So I'd be very interested in terms of a, you know, a kind of policy question. What, you know, if we want to produce a better number or convince people to use a better number, how do we actually do that as, as a practical way of doing that. I mean, I'd just like to take your views. I mean, my overall sense was, in fact, that, you know, from looking through your presentations, the GDP per capita is actually not a very, it's a pretty good number to look at. I mean, it, I was actually struck when Tony presented his uh, figure 
taking into account, uh, starting from the, you know, the, uh, the top line number of uh, gross disposable income per capita, and then moving down, sorry, real GDP per capita, moving down to uh, uh, spendable income. We do want to, of course, have government services in there because they are really improving the well-being of people. We do want to mm-hmm. take into account people's <laughs> pension and equity. We, that's what we do want. I mean, I, I think going down to just household disposable income, you know, in some sense, seems to be a, a, a mistake in terms of at least thinking about policy making. So anyway, that's my so the narrow question: What should we do? And a, a broader question, which, in fact, listening to your answer, I, I came to the view that you know GDP capita is not a bad way to think. If you want to think about the total amount of the size of the economic pie that we then want to think about how we redistribute. Yeah. I certainly, you're right to say that there's confusion, and there's been, there's been a, essentially a confusion about this ever since the beginning of national accounts. In the sense, there was always the tension between people who wanted to keep track of what resources were and what you've just described is exactly what people wanted in wartime, essentially, to know what resources were available and could be were going to be used in uh, military effort and how much was going to be available for domestic consumption. It's precisely that accounting exercise which originally led uh, Keynes to ask James Mead and Richard Stone to produce the wartime national accounts. But, of course, at the same time, these people were also working on welfare economics, and Samuelson and others said, well, actually, what you're doing, you can also attach a welfare interpretation to. And so there's always been this tension between an accounting, and Paul made exactly at the same point, a tension in the accounting notion and an evaluative notion. And these two happen to coincide to some degree, but don't always. And that's why part of the confusion is people, as you rightly say, are using these for different purposes. And so that's why I think some of the measures um, which were being suggested, uh, were directed at the evaluation rather than the accounting part. And you may be more interested in the accounting part for certain purposes. Then I think the the point you make, which of course goes goes equally to the issue about the resources and how they're used. And that's indeed the purpose of this breakdown, was to bring out exactly, as it were, what different elements they go into. And that's why I said that the narrative that you tell is very important from the point of view of people's expectations with regard to what can be expected. I mean, the narrative about what has happened to spendable income is a different narrative from that from GDP. I mean, they tend end up at much the same point, but they had a very different course over this decade. One went up to only 15% and one hardly got above 7 So the households feeling that they were not sharing in growth was a genuine one in terms of what they perceived of what they were getting. So I think that one has to tell this, 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 this uh, to have a narrative of this kind because uh, a lot of policy is driven by the, the apparent mismatch between what's happening and the expectations. And I think a lot of the story about why Europe went through its uh, anxieties about growth and so on over the last uh, pre-crisis was because of this mismatch between what people some sense of being told what's happening in the national accounts and what they they perceive, and therefore explaining the difference between these is, is, I think, an important part of the political process. And this can be done, as you rightly say, and I think the first line of my conclusion was immediate changes can be made. Yes. We don't have to, love a, we don't have to do a whole lot of new statistical work. Well, do it. Can, can I just 
abuse my privilege as moderator to well, just come in on that because when you were talking, you know, and I looked at the various components and you were breaking them down, some of the things that are the difference between household income and GDP are very poorly measured. Um, and, and in particular, yeah. um, government services, where I mean, someone from the ONS here, but I mean, we changed the way in which we, we measure all that. God knows whether it um, is, is any better than the, than the old way. But I mean, one reason why people may not have recognized the value of the increased spending on government services is that, you know, actually it didn't reduce that the, me the measurement of the outcomes was very poor. And similarly, the whole pension thing, amputed. Um, uh, uh, rent of owner occupiers. These these things are just very poorly measured. So, um, isn't that? Is, aren't some of these crude problems part of the the perception difficulty? Yes. Well, I think one has. To, I, I agree with you, but I think one has to to say poorly measured is um, an understatement. Well, no. It's but it also it's, it's a, it has to be, it should be a relative statement. Yeah. And, and relatively, they're not necessarily quite so badly measured as all that, because much of the rest of GDP is badly measured too. <laughs> <laughs> And I, you know, I think that when we had a manufacturing economy, it was relatively straightforward. I think mm -hmm. the move to a service economy has made life so much more difficult, as Jean-Paul said earlier on. I mean, I think the whole yep. how we measure the financial services industry is, I think, probably on any scale worse than how we measure government services. It's certainly in the same box. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, or in the, certainly in the same box. So, I, I think that the, you, you put your finger on what is clearly a, a serious difficulty. I mean, I think I should just say on government services, having written some. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I we might a little, get to a little bit about that. Um, <laughs> But I should say, with largely the work of the ONS, or uh, did all the work on on the review we did. I mean, there are two basically methods. Uh, the, it, we are still in certain elements, and this applies here, using input measures. But for the GDP volume measures, we are using measures of output. Mm -hmm. And I think, on the whole, that um, I mean, partly by putting more resources into this. Uh, when I first started the review, I think there were three people working on measuring government output. And, mm -hmm. and I asked how many there were working on manufacturing, and I think the number was in three figures, 100 and something working and on manufacturing. And more on agricultural, probably. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that they have allocated more resources. So, and that actually is another point I would just stress also, which is, of course, that um, all of the things we're talking about involve resources. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, at the moment we're putting increasing demands on our statistical measurements at a time we're cutting back by 25% in ONS, if that's the right figure. And all around Europe, we're cutting statistical offices at a time we're putting more pressures on them for measuring targets and all sorts of things. So uh, there's, a, there's another mismatch, which is between the significance of economic statistics in the political debate on the one hand, which is going up, and the resources for official statistical offices going down. So, John, I, perhaps you repeat your question, because I slightly hijacked so, that. Uh, so, the, uh, so okay, well, the narrow question is, I mean, what should we do? I mean, is, I mean, there is the resource allocation question in the statistical offices. Is that just you know, what we should do, or in terms of, I mean, it, to, to promote other ways of me better measuring, let's say, national well-being in terms of GDP and distribution? Because, you know... You, you, the study you put from IFS did that. I mean, we could do that. We could it's not it'd be a, a, the growth commission itself, the CEP, could put you know inequality adjusted measures of GDP up and have that up on our website yeah. every every quarter. Okay, is, well, that, is that what we should? I mean, I'll look for it tomorrow. <laughs> but I mean, you know, yes. we could. But is that one of the things yeah. that we? I mean, yeah. that, that's a, that, it's a very practical question. Yeah. Would that? I mean, it is extraordinary. The, the, I said the, this, the figure for the eurozone. I mean, I only found by it was in a, a technical paper produced by Eurostat. Uh, that actually shows a graph like this produced for a conference. I don't think it's ever been published. 
So that is a question of the, of the priorities, and that's a political judgment. Obviously, by yeah, it would be perfectly possible for the ECFIN or some other body in the European Union to make sure that was prominently placed. I'm mean, said are producing the figures, um, but this is not getting the publicity. Cool. In terms of what uh, should be done, I. Even though many of the measures that we've been talking about are in principle in the current national accounts, that doesn't mean that all the tables are full or are full with the numbers at the level of quality that you'd like to have them. Okay, so there, it is clear that there are statistical construction sites uh, that uh, need to be followed up. They were already mentioned. I mean. Measuring uh, a volume of uh, government output is something that uh, is, uh, is there's still many gaps there, and there's a lot to be to be done uh, in the area of health, uh, education, and housing. We have big gaps in balance sheets. I mean, uh, GDP is a flow measure, and uh, you would never evaluate a private firm just looking at their profit and loss accounts. I mean, actually, before that, you would look at the balance sheets. Well, it's just the other way around with national accounts. Mm. I mean, everyone is focusing on the flow mm. accounts, yeah. whereas really, uh, at the end of the day, what matters for wealth is uh, wealth accounts and the balance sheets, and how do you go from the opening to the at the end of the at the beginning of the year to the end of the year, uh, and you have these movements in there. You have all the revaluations in there. You'd like to have these things broken down by sector also, and uh, the mini gaps uh, in the availability of data. The concepts are there. The uh, that that's not the issue, but they need to be need to be filled. And uh, I mean the initiatives are ongoing, but they're not. Uh, it's not as if uh, they were they were fully there. Uh, the same thing with the distribution adjusted income. I briefly mentioned that, uh, yes, we do have a lot of information on how uh, income is distributed among households or individuals. We do have uh, information on how overall income evolves for the household sector. But uh, we're still struggling a little bit with uh, bringing these two sources together for some of the reasons that were mentioned, because there are different uh, notions of what constitutes income. When you ask people, they have a different uh, sense for uh, what constitutes income than when you ask a national accountant. And uh, bringing those things together is actually a pretty, uh, pretty tough job, statistically uh, speaking. Because at the end of the day, what you'd like to have is this integration that Tony mentioned, not just the distribution, not just as an afterthought, but really as part of the, uh, part of the production process. And finally, uh, it is communication also. I mean, what do we put up quarterly? Uh, which are the numbers that we communicate on? Uh, and uh, what are the things that we yeah, we put out for, for debate? And I think there's still an asymmetry there uh, on, in, in favor of, of GDP. That would be a real challenge to put out quarterly income inequality-adjusted GDP figures, wouldn't it? Well, you certainly could put out uh, a quarterly, I mean, already putting out average, average household, even you know. More, exactly. The information content in quite a lot of the GDP figures that go out now is pretty low. I mean, it would be increasingly just an imaginary construct, wouldn't it? A bit longer legs, but I mean, we Well, you'll be doing yeah. an awful lot on the basis of stuff that actually hadn't been revised, you know, um, yeah. sort of 
hypothetical distributions or old distributions, I think, or projected distributions. Although when new information comes in on the distribution, you then you would revise it like yeah. you do the GDP. No, no, numbers. it would I mean, just be know. producing even more the sort of mm. hard, hard news content to the, the GDP figures. But I think it's not the main point. Uh, Jean-Paul, do you want to comment on um, this issue? Yeah, about the distribution issue, we need to have uh, the uh, distribution adjusted income. But we have to recognize that it would have different meaning uh, in a society where there is strong social mobility, in a society where there is no such a thing. That means that the same, the same measure would uh, be a signal of something wrong and of, of something which is not that wrong if uh, there is a strong social mobility. So, but anyway, uh, it, it's not because we can interpret it in a different way depending on context, but we should discuss with uh, having uh, this kind of matter. Francesca, do you want to? Yeah, thanks. Probably following up on, on John's question, I mean, I, I agree with John that it's probably a need to have a sense of what is the headline number that we want to focus on. I mean, it's great to say, well, GDP is good for this, uh, household income is good for that, and national income is good for another thing. But in the end, you know, to think about performance and organized thinking is, is good to have. Uh, uh, a headline number and a headline statistic to, to focus on. Now, I, I, am, I couldn't be more sympathetic to the view that GDP misses uh, things that are just too important to, uh, to ignore. So I, I'm, I'd be very sympathetic to uh, trying to find some, something else uh, to focus on. And it seems to me that the, the discussion has given us two candidates, which is one is a, a national income figure. Uh, Paul highlighted, and another one is a household income-based uh, figure. And I wanted to just try to focus now briefly on, on the comparison between these two, because I, I think both of them are better than GDP. Uh, and, uh, but I'm a bit undecided between these two, and so I wanted to, to get your help on that. So the household-based figure seems to me to have a, a huge advantage, because they allow us to take into account distribution which I think is incredibly important. So that seems to be like a very strong argument for going to the household level. <clears throat> now, the disadvantage I think that has already come up a bit is, is measurement issues, uh, mm. particularly in terms of the lags that, that you have to have. I mean, if you want to have a performance measure, it would be good to have something that, that you can measure pretty quickly uh, and not to have to wait for uh, detailed uh, microdata analysis. And so that's, that, that consideration of the data uh, availability and the lags uh, is uh, it countered the previous point about distribution and, and seems to favor uh, national income measures. Uh, so I have, one, well, I have two questions. One is, uh, is it, so to, to, get a, to get a distribution, you probably need to, to wait a bit. But do you think there are contemporary um, sort of leading indicators that can be used that have predictive power for, for distribution. So things that you can observe contemporaneously that tells you something about what's happening in distribution and have a, a, decent, a decent assessment of that. that. That might help uh, 
that might help uh, reduce the concern with, uh, with lags. But then, so that's one question. The other question is a conceptual one, which is to do with the role of the government. Because ultimately, well, you know, my national accounts are a bit rusty, but if I'm not completely mistaken, uh, ultimately the distinction between household income and, and, and national income largely rests on what, what chunk of national income is taken by the government and what chunk is left to households. Now, if the government takes it and uses it to, uh, to say, provide uh, health services or educational services, then that difference is not that important because you can impute, in the household income, you can impute the value of the services received by households. And so then you can actually reconcile national income and household income that way. But say that the government takes a chunk of GDP and uses it to repay debt. Okay. Now that, you know, whether you want national income or household income, it seems to me to depend on whether you believe in equivalence, equivalents, essentially. Uh, because if you believe in equivalent equivalents, then repaying the debt means lower future taxes. Uh, you know, why wouldn't you want to count that as a benefit for households? Uh, on the other hand, if you don't believe in equivalent equivalents, then you probably want to stick to the household income. Uh, is that, I mean, I'm not asking you if you believe in equivalent equivalents or not. I'm asking you whether you think I'm thinking in the right way. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the right trade-offs here. Ricardo didn't believe in Ricardo Nicky, so <laughs> asking me to is a bit too much. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think, but that question, of course, brings out a point which um, Jean Paul and uh, Paul also brought out, which is, of course, the intertemporal nature of this. I mean, I think that's what, that complicates the things, and I, I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that. And we are taking a snapshot of, a, of a, which is a process in time, uh, and I, I agree. I think that the um, there are a few other elements to the story apart from the ones you mentioned. Of course, there are the retained earnings of the corporate sector, which vary quite a lot. So that's another part of it. And the role of institutions like pension funds and other things, which become increasingly important. So they, again, this question, you can say, well, the fact that legal and general or whatever got my money, I count it as mine, but actually that's another kind of equivalence for them so I believe in. So I think that uh, there are these other institutions which are complicated. The institutional structure is more complicated than it was in the old days, uh, so to say. I think two other points. One is, I'm not saying we should move to a household basis and not look at national, particularly national income as corrected by the ways that Paul described. I, I mm. that's, that's clearly a very important part of the story. I'm not saying we should... But I'm saying we need to look at both, both of these things, not one, it's not either or. And the, the, the difference between them is exactly what we're now talking about. It is therefore an important part of what we should be discussing. So, uh, I, although I think it's useful you sort of contrast them, I'm not saying this is you have to for one or the other. Both are clearly very relevant, particularly in terms of your agenda, thinking about going forward, where the resources are going to go. And just if I could reiterate, I do think that the idea that we're going to have rising individual household consumption in the future at the same rate as GDP is simply unrealistic. And that, that gap is going to be taken up partly by the public services you mentioned, and of course partly by things which we haven't talked about much, which is environmental, essentially restoring the uh, environmental damage we're doing. So the kinds of depreciations, etc. So there are several reasons why this gap. And that means, I think, among other things, that means that looking to the future, consumption per head measured into these terms, that is, in terms of individual consumption, is not going to rise so fast, which is one reason why we should therefore uh, discount the future less than we otherwise would have done. Because in the discount rate we apply following the 
uh, the Treasury uh, instructions about public investment, of course, that depends on the growth rate. And that growth rate for that purpose is the growth rate of individual consumption. So that way we often adjust that down. That means we have a longer time perspective, which comes again to the intertemporal. But then finally, the issue about timeliness is very important. And I know there's no doubt at all in the European Union that the adoption of Europe 2020 objectives, which include distributional objectives, has meant that for the first time, I think some people in the European Union at the senior level have realized that our statistics are rather out of date. So we, we, we can only assess the Lisbon agenda as we're now, more or less, even though it's finished a couple of years ago. Uh, and therefore, quite a lot of work is being done to speed up this. And some interesting work has been done about, for example, how you can produce first round estimates based on surveys very quickly after the surveys are carried out. So Spain, for example, did calculation of their poverty rate that turned out to be accurate within 0.1% of the final value they arrived at several months later. So I think we are beginning, and of course this involves investment again, we can speed these things up. So certainly one was able to talk about, say, what happened and today, talk about what happened in 2011 may now be feasible. So just to pin you down on this point, so how, how close are we to be able to measure, say, median, median household income? That's fine. With the same frequency as we currently measure. Uh, no. we're, we're not going to measure it at the same frequency as we do with GDP because that's based on aggregate indicators of various sorts of mm. well, so on. So it's not, but we're certainly getting much closer to be able to do that um, in the sense we can probably say six months, nine months afterwards be able to use the household surveys to get that sense of the median, which is probably much less sensitive and therefore less affected by the kind of editing and so on done to the data. Um, I suspect that could be done. So as a question of political will and resources as much as anything else. I, I'm less sanguine about whether we can think of other indicators that will actually be a good indicator or a, more, or a leading indicator. I think that approach is interesting and attractive as a, as a research question, but the idea that some good leading indicators of inequality, I'm not, I, I, it'd be very good if we could discover them, but I don't know. That's going to be easy to do. Um, on the on the yes on the timeliness issue, I uh, I agree very much with what uh, Tony said. Traditionally, it has been said that uh, income distributions move very slowly. Really, if mm -hmm. you look at the OECD economies, well, I'm not so sure that is still the case. But we really we don't quite know, and uh, that's another reason why I think we need to develop uh, tools that allow us a quicker judgment about. For example, what has happened over the last, you know, two two years or so with the uh, with the income distributions, and of course, if there is more movements in terms of uh, uh, crises or over the business uh, uh, cycle, then that would give us also the tool to have a you know, headline indicator that would be reasonably reasonably uh, timely. I uh, don't know about any uh, leading indicators that uh, could be. Could be used there, but then I'm not. I'm not a specialist in this in this area. Um, on the uh, the other question that you you put forward on the role of government, I think you're right. We should, uh, and that's actually part of the proposal, uh, bringing the the value of government services into household income. Uh, you shouldn't forget about the uh, corporate sector yeah. when you think about redistribution within the economies. I mean, there's lots of there, there's also flows. Uh, but that's, uh, between those that's ends, a very similar question to the Italian equivalent question, right? Yes, yeah. of course. Over the, if you project yourself in the long term, and at the end of the day, of course, households are owners of the businesses. Certainly in a closed economy, 
right? Yeah, yeah. There's another <laughs> part of a sector that is the rest yeah. of the world, uh, which significantly complicates things yeah. and uh, does so even more if you think about this whole measurement uh, in a context maybe slightly outside the OECD countries. I mean, John mentioned before that, well, maybe GDP isn't such a bad indicator to you know, get a rough judgment on how well-off people are. Uh, yes, uh, I think that may be true if you want to get a basic sense whether uh, material well-being is higher in France than in Zimbabwe. Yes, you know, your GDP per capita will give you all the basic story. But as soon as you dig a little uh, further, uh, you you know you will run into the limits of uh, GDP as a measure of of material uh, uh, well-being. Uh, think of the even for and in particular for developing countries. Think of a case where you have major foreign investments with repatriation <coughs> of uh, of corporate uh, benefits or profits afterwards. You can have a major a difference mm -hmm. between uh, how your production measure evolves and how your income measure evolves uh, for the right. for the population. So. Uh, so I don't think. Uh, uh, so I, I still think that uh, uh, income is an important. Uh, is an I, important I agree with that, but it, yeah. that that kind of data is currently available for say OECD countries. Or is even uh, my my understanding was that you know getting those remittances and that type of data is available for OECD countries, or is uh, that not the case? Income and production data, yeah, that's available yeah. for, for OECD countries. Yes. So I'm getting a bit muddled. I mean, yeah. the, the spendable income that Tony was talking about excludes government services. Yes. Which are significantly redistributed. Mm. So aren't we missing something there? Well, I guess it... Oh, sorry. No, I mean, you know, if you think about no. the major changes in mm -hmm. income distribution that are likely to come about in this country over the next few years, quite a lot of them will flow from changes in, in government services. Mm. That, that's, you know, part of it. We would miss that entirely, wouldn't we, by your measure? Yes, and sir. But we would pretend to know about it yep. because we'd yep. say this is an inequality adjusted measure of mm. income, but you would actually be leaving mm. out of account yep. one of the major engines for uh, increasing inequality. Just to put it in a slightly more extreme uh, Well, look, we're major. Yeah, I'm <laughs> just exactly. But you know, in <laughs> terms of yep. actually yeah, things changing over yep. a short period mm. of time. No, indeed. This is talking about the inequality of the resources over which households have control. Yeah, I think you miss quite a lot. Well, uh, you do, but you then do of course, that. I mean, you're in a redistributive society. But you're absolutely right. But then, of course, you have to ask the question: What do we know about the redistributive effect of these government services? And that's why, I mean, that's why, uh, and that's a much more difficult question. But, but there was something in one of your tables yes, which suggested yeah. the bottom quintile gets the lion's share. Oh, can you go back to the table? Uh, <laughs> I may have forgotten the number. <laughs> I think we have to be kept distinguished between the transfer part of the budget. Yeah, absolutely. But I think public, if you've got the education yeah. and health. Yeah. Can I get clarification on, on this question? What, what would conceptually stop you from constructing a inequality corrected measure of household income after imputing? Mm. Oh, you certainly could do that. Yeah. You could no, do yeah. that. That, that. That's what, if I made you that. We can I mean, do that in yeah. the UK. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, if you don't mind the quality of the data, I mean, yeah, uh, can't we? Well, <laughs> I, we do. We do publish. Stephen is much more than I do, but we do publish. Yeah. No, but this is this is exactly uh, stirring yeah. my memories. But uh, yeah, we, we we publish something called yes, but that's uh, an allocation, for example, which allocates health spending on a demographic basis. 
uh, education spending equally on, per child. And so there's no attempt, for example, this is measuring, this is, a bit, this is part of what Paul said, it's, it's an input measure rather than an output measure. Yeah. So you actually, if you ask the question what the outputs are, which is what the national yeah. accounts have been trying to measure, then of course mm. we don't know who is actually has the hip replacements and so on, and that would be by income group. Uh, and how good these hip replacements are. You say this, I'm, I'm conscious that I promised that I would give the folk on the floor a chance to ask questions, and we've eaten into that time. But you, you Very briefly on this, I think it, there are two slightly different perspectives to the same question. Uh, the perspective that uh, Tony has adopted was uh, one of uh, uh, spendable household income in the sense what it is that people perceive typically as income. Okay, So kind of closing this gap between what is out there in official statistics and what uh, the individual typically would identify with his or her material situation in life. Now if you do that... Uh, uh, you, uh, you try to come as close as possible to a measure that you know tells you something about what is left at the end of the of the day to be spent on other things. Whereas uh, the measure that uh, or, or the different perspective that uh, we've been uh, proposing is to actually say, well, uh, if you want to get uh, an idea of how well-off households are, you do want to take into account the uh, services that uh, households sure. receive from government and, and that and they others. value quite highly and should value more highly i mean the mm. idea that mm. we're going to produce mm. a, an indicator which will encourage people to set a greater value on the tap that they buy in their local shopping mall as against what they get from the state in the form of free education and health you know it runs against quite against the grain doesn't it but the the, the where we're not there in terms of the information base is to get a good sense of how these uh, services in kind are allocated between different Absolutely. income groups no, I, we know the total from the national accounts uh, but we don't know of exactly who benefits from yes. where. This is part of the, sure. I mean, the fringe study. So we, this is clearly a work where we need to do more. Jean-Paul, do you mind if I, if I open this? I mean, can you, have you, are you burning to say something, or can I open it to the floor? Okay, tell you that it has been very hard for me to follow the discussion because of that. Okay, all right. I'll give you a chance later on. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, I think I would like to just give people who've come along a chance to ask questions. Yes, do you want to say who you are? I think you need to have a mic. Jean Paul won't be able to hear you. Yes, and an opportunity for him to. Yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to say, first of all, that I agreed very much with the way that uh, Paul Schreier put it, uh, GDP and beyond, rather than beyond GDP. Um, but I'd just like to um, raise a few issues around that topic. Um, if we do go beyond GDP, we're looking at things like inequality, as uh, everyone has said. But... Uh, I'd like just to remind everyone of something that Tony Blair said a few years ago, which was that he didn't spend, uh, he didn't waste much sleep worrying about how to reduce Wayne Rooney's income. And I think he was very much in tune with the typical person's values in saying that, at least at the time, um, because of the notion of desert. 
the popular, you know, it seems to me that most people are attached to the notion of dessert, though philosophers, of course, have criticized this down the centuries. So that it all depends how you make your income, whether people find a high income objectionable or not. And so we'd all like to reduce the income of bankers and criminals and so forth, but not necessarily of people who've, you know, gained their uh, high income through what we regard as meritorious activities. I wouldn't um, agree with you about Wayne Reed. So that, that was one point. The other was that, again, if we move beyond GDP and thinking about some of the things that uh, Paul Schreier again listed, the OECD is doing, I, I may have got it wrong, but I think that one thing was missing, which was uh, what you might call income uncertainty, that people certainly seem to be worried about, worried, about the prospect of losing their jobs. Obviously, they don't like actually losing their jobs, but they're just worried about the prospect of losing their jobs. They're worried about their pension not being worth what they thought it was, their house not being worth what they thought it was, and so on and so on. Uh, so an important aspect of economic well-being, it seems to me, is uncertainty. I'm not sure that... And there's also the prospect that uncertainty is increasing and has been increasing. And then finally, um, not to take up too long, um, an analytical issue which I think is very relevant for the Growth Commission. Does the growth process itself uh, lead to outcomes that, on these other measures which we might not like? For example, does um, growth lead to rising inequality? Uh, does it lead to rising uncertainty, income uncertainty? Uh, and... Uh, Certainly on the inequality side, we have various theories out there which suggest precisely that, globalization, skill bias, technical progress. Um, and in the past, we could have a division of labor. One lot of economists could promote growth, another lot of economists could discuss ways of alleviating inequality, and they didn't necessarily need to talk to each other very much because they were different problems. But it may be that uh, these problems are now linked, and therefore, uh, that growth policies have to look at this rather explicitly. Thanks. Now I'm going to take a few questions before we come back to um, our presenters. There's at least two or three hands up. Um, so Vicky Price next, I think. You had your hand up next at the back there. Hello. Uh, Vicky Price, previously joint head of the Government Economic Service. I found it all really interesting, but I just had a couple of questions really um, coming out of, the, of, of uh, Tony Atkinson's uh, presentation. Um, and also a little bit from the OCD one. Um, do we make any assumptions about the right balance of the economy? Or do we need to do so when we're looking at what the expectations of growth might be? Or will they be subjective? In other words, if there is more investment in manufacturing, which of course has higher productivity and higher exports and all that sort of stuff and higher spillovers, and we see that share either increasing or declining, do we then, is there an assumption in whatever you said that we have to either lower or increase expectations of what growth may be in the future, um, because obviously it has you know, different repercussions on, on the economy, or is it just a value judgment that therefore becomes incredibly difficult to do? And similarly, on the skill side, the depletion of capacity, capability, if you like, given that a lot of the growth in the economy, uh, in terms of translating into jobs recently, has been in uh, part-time, lower-skilled, less training type jobs, because that's basically what they are, do we then, would we, under your principle, adjust expectations lower as well? Because we're just basically moving into a sort of depletion of that type of 
capability that we have in the economy. Because basically what we do know is that people who work in, in part-time jobs tend to be working at least one level below their skill level. So all these things are, of course, quite complicated, but you end up with a bit of a value judgment. I'm worried if we end up, if that's the only thing we can do about these issues. Thank you. Um, somebody there, and then you. Stephen Jenkins, uh, LSE. I'd like to make a remark uh, about timeliness, um, which the panel picked up quite a lot, um, and the issue of now casting. And we put quite a lot of re uh, resources into macroeconomic forecasting and drawing upon those to now cast. I'd like to suggest that uh, the panel consider issue uh, micro simulation as a way of um, doing now casting in a more um, systematic way. So this picks up on Tony's point about uh, resources being put into particular fields. Uh, so surveys are available. Um, there are European-wide uh, micro-simulation models. For example, Euromod at the University of Essex covering most of the Euro EU25 now. And of course, you know about the IFS model for Britain in particular. Um, so I think uh, Tony referred kindly to our uh, project about the effects of uh, the Great Recession on household incomes, and for our six of the case uh, among our six case study countries, for three of them, we used micro simulation r relatively successfully. I think to draw implications about what had been happening now, rather than use it relying on historical data. Thank you. There's somebody at the front here. There's two people here. Um, this is the original. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm Charles Seaford from the New Economics Foundation. Uh, two questions. Uh, one actually sort of closely related to that one. I mean, there was some discussion of lags in terms of distributional data, and I wasn't quite clear from the discussion whether the panel thought that um, those lag problems could be dealt with to the point where you could actually publish a, uh, an inequality-adjusted headline figure that would actually displace the existing GDP figure as the sort of the news, um, and perhaps we need to rely upon the kind of techniques just referred to to do that. Uh, <clears throat> my second question was related to resource depletion that Paul Schreier was talking about and, and, and reaching a net number. And you mentioned that you had excluded uh, uh, ecological services. Uh, more generally, I wondered why you, or whether you felt it was appropriate to uh, consider not all externalities, but perhaps the the most important externalities, for example, the impact of different forms of activity on climate change, um, and then produce some kind of discounted uh, negative number uh, to take that into account, or kind of make that a kind of adjustment. Whether you thought that was feasible. And then there was somebody there. Yes, Robert, Robert, Wade, Robert Wade at LSE. Um, we have been talking like pl platonic guardians and assuming that governments operate like platonic guardians. I'm wondering, this is a lateral question, whether you have any thoughts about how, as resources for statistical, these statistical purposes are cut, how um, the statistical services can be insulated from government attempts to manipulate these numbers. Presumably, the Greek government uh, made quite sure that the head of the Greek statistical service in the run-up to... 2010 was a politically very um, compliant um, person who could do the massaging that the um, senior Greek politicians wanted. But Greece is certainly not um, the only case of this kind. I happen to know examples of China where the Chinese government has done 
um, quite outrageous manipulation of its GDP, uh, GDP per capita numbers, including by leaning on the World Bank to adjust its numbers for China's GDP. So there's a lot of interest involved in the part of politicians to massage the numbers one way or another. The question is how to curb this. Question we've been grappling with in this country for a couple of decades. Yes. Um, I think we'll just take one more. Yes. And then we'll go back to the panel for a final uh, uh, walk around the rich array of topics, which I'm sure you yes. will. Thank you. Um, I'm Glenn Everett from the ONS. I'm currently the program director for uh, measuring well-being, and I should say, ex just ex-head of the National Accounts. Um, and I'm also from the independent ONS. <laughs> uh, I'm very pleased the panel sort of highlighted that there's not one measure. It's, it's very difficult. We need the objective and the subjective measures to actually look at the wider measures of well-being. I'm also pleased we're looking to supplement, not supplant. It's, it's quite important. We don't lose focus on what what's, could be a variety of uses of some of this information. Um, we have, just for information, we've actually produced the last couple of weeks a new household article uh, looking at the income and expenditure of households adjusted for some of the government services in kind. And we're going to be putting that out on a regular quarterly basis from now on, uh, which actually addresses some of the additional information we're trying to make available on some of this, uh, these areas. I admit it is a long-term program, and we're trying to take this forward. Um, one of the questions I actually should get to is, is about education. Journalists and others uh, very much concentrate on a single number, GDP, and very much concentrate on the latest quarter, you know, particularly on the first release, which has a, a range of uh, confidence, let's say, around it. Do we need to educate users, particularly if we're going to concentrate a lot more on distribution rather than a single number? I, I suggest today we've got a fairly biased audience who understands the differences and everything else, but if we're trying to push this out to the public in general, how does the Commission and others suggest we educate? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I don't have anybody else dying to ask a question. We've got ten minutes before we have to release mm. your trains. Um, Shall we go in the reverse order? Start with Jean-Paul, who didn't have his... Um, opportunity. Have you caught all those questions? Okay. I don't think you probably haven't got time to answer every one. <laughs> one question. Yeah. If I understood. There was a question about domestic or national uh, uh, income, and uh, uh, I thought that it was bizarre that when uh, globalization increased, we skip to a, a, a GDP figure rather than to a, a national account figure. And because the, the domestic figure we are not taking into account, uh, international mm -hmm. channel of, of uh, capital and of services. The second, uh, and, and it's why the national. Seems to be much more adapted to the time we are living in. 
The circuit is about the government and manipulation. We are not advocating creative accounting, of course. But uh, one of the things which may be the people to believe that uh, public data are manipulated is the fact that they do not recognize the public data which are published. And they may not recognize themselves, not because government are cheating or public agencies are cheating, but generally because the figure we are giving to them are average. And nobody is recognizing itself, nowadays, in an average. So uh, it's why there is a deep feeling when about the gross figure and uh, the inflation figures that uh, public statistics is lying because they are really figures. So it's uh, why uh, it is better to give a dashboard of uh, indicator to the population to avoid this misunderstanding. Uh, and this idea that uh, government are manipulating or elaborating uh, with uh, statistics. That's the question I used to do, I did not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good excuse. <laughs> Paul. Uh, Nick mentioned the issue of economic insecurity. I think that's a very important issue. Uh, it probably actually gives rise to a more general dimension of insecurity or vulnerability of which economic insecurity is one, one aspect. Uh, this is actually one of the dimensions in our quality of life uh, uh, indicators. So we're trying to capture it there. Uh, I think it would be very hard to have uh, you know, this kind of volatility or insecurity element uh, is an integral part of the more national accounts related measures. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't quite know how to how to go about it, but it is a very important uh, point. Um, I don't think we're making a, a value judgment by uh, measuring these uh, uh, things. Uh, uh, the, uh, I don't think we're saying anything about what the right balance is between the different assets or between the different income flows. I think that's the, this is where the analysis has to come in and uh, the usage of this data has to come in really. But I, I don't think that the construction of the data implies some kind of hypothesis that would already make a, a value judgment along those uh, lines. Uh, my third answer, yes, there was a question about why the ecosystem services were excluded or why we shouldn't bring them in. I think this is for purely pragmatic reasons. Uh, to do uh, an assessment uh, or valuation of ecosystem services properly, you would need to have some kind of uh, social valuation. I mean, what is the value to society of a healthy forest as opposed to the value of society from pulling timber out of that forest. And uh, I think that at this moment, uh, official statisticians are <coughs> probably not yet in a position 
to embark on uh, uh, social valuations. I think this is a very important area, but I consider that an area for research rather than for uh, the official uh, statistics, simply because if you look at the existing data, the variation of the, of the numbers that you get is, is very large because it implies a lot of modeling, and uh, that would kind of there's a trade-off between the credibility of the official numbers and uh, the usefulness of bringing in these components. But in principle, I think it is, uh, it is uh, an important uh, uh, issue. I don't have any great advice on how to educate uh, uh, the journalists except for putting out the numbers and discussing them uh, uh, with the, with the uh, journalists. How credible do you think... Uh, national accounts based on micro-simulation of, of income distribution would be? I'm not an, uh, an expert on the micro-simulation, but I'm sure that if there is serious research being undertaken that allows just to nowcast some of the distributional yeah. issues and thereby enables us to have a, another headline <laughs> figure that is mm -hmm. of a similar timeliness as the one we're used to, I think that is something that is, would be quite uh, defendable. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I think. Last word for you. Um, well, model-based estimates are not unknown in statistics, and Certainly are. I think if anyone who doubts that <laughs> using microsimulation, I very much agree with what Stephen said, should look at how we calculate financial services indirectly measured from forty-five <laughs> I think that'll be an antidote to that. Um, I just want to make two points because there are lots of very interesting points made. One is. Really, the subject for a whole session, I suspect, or more of this commission, the points that um, Nick first raised and then Vicky Price raised about relationships between inequality and growth. And I think you know, it's, I could, we could all talk for quite a long time. I think I just want to make two points. One is that obviously the sources of inequality are very much to be found in the structure of the economy as well as in public policy. And it's very important to look at that, and that's part of the story. So I don't I believe it's all public policy. Um, secondly, in looking at this relationship, I think the comparisons across countries are often illuminating. And I think one thing which is very striking, if you go back in time, is that the earnings dispersion in the United States, reflecting the pressures of trade and technology and so on, uh, went up by twice the amount it went up in this country. But the earnings distribution widened much more in the United States relative to the UK, we came less. Income inequality measured at a household level went up by twice as much in this country compared to the United States. So the income inequality movements were much bigger here than they were there. So that suggests that. So I mean, the Gini coefficient essentially went up by 10 percentage points, where the American ones got up by five or six or something. So, so that, that suggests, as it were, that the country differences either in the structure of the economies or in public policy are going to affect that. And then I think equally behind yeah. that is also another point which Vicky mentioned about part-time work, which I think is very important. It also relates to this somewhat uneasy relationship between individuals' situations and those of families and households. And that's one reason why the difference between the US and the UK came about, because of the difference in individuals. And that's why it's not just part-time work, it's the distribution of part-time work and where it's located and which households have it and so on. So that's, again, another part of the story which um, tends to get missed. So we could look at individuals, we could look at households, and which you get then brings up uh, a lot of interesting issues, including almost other gender issues, which we haven't talked about. And then finally, on the, um, the politics um, of it, I mean, I think uh, my own view is that I, I think that the steps made towards ONS independence have definitely been 
improvement, but they are steps. And I think independence is not ever going to be attained. It's a kind of continuum where the degree of political involvement may be more or less. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be political involvement because of the resources. You can have an independent uh, institution, but if you don't give it enough resources, then you can, there's nothing they can do. So I think that the, it, it's, it's degrees, and I think the UK is probably a better place. And I've just finished a term on the European Statistics Governance Board, and we quite often wrote letters to countries about you'll be surprised how often the heads of statistical offices change in different countries. Uh, and those are often, we've now inserted in the code of practice condition not only about the appointment, but also the non-disappointment of the sacking <laughs> of the statistical offices. Uh, and then uh, on the Wayne Rooney point, that's one reason I did stress that uh, uh, Wayne Rooney gets a positive weight in the inequality adjusted income, even though we're very small. <laughs> he gets a weight according to his rank in the distribution, so he may be one, one or two, but he gets, he gets got a strictly positive weight, so it's not falling foul of the Blair criticism. And finally, just to remind us that uh, this whole enterprise of national accounts began with a man who wrote a book called Political Arithmetic, and I think <laughs> it is political arithmetic. Look, thank you very much indeed for coming, giving us your time this morning. It's been really useful. Um, perhaps we give them a round of applause. <laughs>